Listening to the brand new episode of In Love with the Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? Come on in, have a seat. Um, today, we are going to uh, go back into the world of cinematography. Uh, if there's something that we've done well on the show, we've had uh, some of the best cinematographers in the business, some of the uh, most interesting up and coming cinematographers in the business. We've had cinematographers and directors in the business on the show. Uh, why? Because I'm obsessed with it. I love it, man. I mean, you guys have been listening long enough. You know that my roots come from photography and cinematography. And as a director, I've been trying to learn to blend the two things and and uh, learn as much as I can from that partnership. And when you're talking about uh, how a film is made, there are very specific partnership heads that make a movie. And you're talking about, uh, actually, it's interesting when, you, when I'm saying it out loud, right? So director whatever sort of producer you're working with. The producer is really important, even though we like to go poo-poo on producers. Producers are really important. Director, producer, cinematographer, that bond is huge. The production designer, those bonds are huge. I could get more production designers on the show. I am going to do make a push for this in the new year as well. Um, sound. I feel like that trilogy is really fucking important. If you guys have noticed, when David Fincher has been touring and doing press on uh, his uh, latest film, The Killer, you know, he's been touring a lot with sound and editor and all those folks. They, they really are the second half of making the movie and the, the most important part of making the movie, I think. Um, but I'm obsessed with cinematography. And for me, the idea of trying to translate an emotion, trying to translate an action, trying to translate uh, an event into the language of pictures is fascinating to me. And uh, the hundreds of years at this point of experience that an audience has had processing uh, what it means to shoot with a 50 millimeter lens and what it means to, uh, to cut that 50 millimeter lens uh, alongside a 25 and what it means to be super close to somebody and rack that focus to their, their eyelashes um, and then shoot somebody so far and so uh, small in a frame, uh, in a wide shot, what do those things mean? There's a language, there's a hidden language to that. What does it mean when we push the camera on, in on someone when they're thinking about something? What does it mean when, they, when we spin the camera and the person spins in the other direction and they all stand up like uh, in a Michael Bay movie? <laughs> what does that mean? You know, I, I, I love this stuff. It's, it's kind of the, the puzzle piece of uh, of the puzzle pieces of making a movie, visually, because movie is a visual medium. And I am constantly trying to yell that out into the ethos because I think there's a lot of content that's being made right now that uh, tries to make stuff look pretty, but they're really not paying attention to the visual language of cinema. What does it mean? And to really make a movie that utilizes the visual language the way I want to have the visual language utilized, it's expensive. It's a it's a process, right? Um, and I I think every cinematographer, every director is trying to work their way into a position where they can finally really, 
work on that visual language and really put a lot of their theories and their their traumatic experiences shooting smaller films to the test and what they learned from all that stuff to the test. Um, and I love that kind of shit. In today's episode, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of that. We're going to talk a lot about coming up in the business. We're going to talk a lot about uh, processing the stresses that come with being a cinematographer or being a crew member in general, that uh, what it requires from these folks to uh, get pulled on to uh, a three-week shoot, four-week shoot, six-day shoot, um, you know, processing uh, what happens when you get sick on set, processing uh, what um, the whole experience does for you emotionally, what it does for you physically, um, processing uh, how to deal with the the extreme plummet into the depression that happens like right after one of these jobs. Um, this episode uh, you can look at as a Swiss army knife for the emotional context of cinematography and, and working in this business because that's what it ended up becoming. Um, we talk about some harsh realities, some harsh truths about why certain movies are made and how they're made. Um, and um, we talk a lot about uh, the insecurities that we have as young filmmakers and notice, dude, I'm fucking 45 and I still call myself a young filmmaker for a reason. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm going to die a young filmmaker. Let's just put it that way. Um, so I'm excited, man. Uh, joining me on the show today is Nick, Nick Matthews is on the show. And Nick uh, has been a cinematographer for a while now. He comes from an interesting place. Wait till you hear about his background. Because uh, that's a fun story. But uh, he most recently shot... Uh, Saw X. So he did the, uh, the recent film Saw X, which uh, I have not seen yet, truth be told, but I've heard that it is one of the better Saw movies in the franchise. Uh, and X means 10, right? Is that the, Has there been 10 Saw movies? Holy shit. Um, and then he, before this, he shot a movie called Mobland with John Travolta and Stephen Dorff. We talk a lot about that. Um, he's had other films... Uh, that he has shot like a movie called Cuck, which looks pretty great. Uh, an official selection of Fantastic Fest, a movie called Spoonful of Sugar, which is a shutter film. Um, he plays around in the horror world and the thriller world, which, you know, it's kind of my world too. So we have a lot in common when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, Nick is about to come on the show and share a lot. Ooh, did you hear my voice crack? So, <clears throat> so when I started today's show, uh, and I started the recording for today's show, we ran into some technical difficulties, um, and uh, your boy had to really catch up quick. <laughs> and I, I'm sure none of it will show up in the episode, but uh, whew, I, I was sweating this morning, trying to get things up and running. It, it, you know what it is, is that this is day two of me doing uh, multiple episodes. I'm recording this episode you know, full transparency, we're recording this in December on the 19th. This is probably going to come out much later than then. Um, but this whole week I've booked out shows and it's been about two weeks that it, since I've recorded podcasts because, you know, we have a queue. We have a, like, a, like a fucking Netflix queue of all these episodes that are just sort of queued up and ready to rock out. And the reason we do it this way, my voice is cracking today. The reason we do it that way is um, I can then go off and work and do all sorts of stuff and the show doesn't stop. Uh, but my, my, uh, my reserve has been dwindling. So your boy is back to recording and you know, it's funny. I've, how many episodes have we done at this point? 
right? I, I officially, we're pushing 300, but unofficially, we probably have about double of that with all the different episodes that we've done. Um, and, you know, practice practice and, and repetition makes it better. <laughs> and so when you're, when, you're, when you're not doing it for a little while, woof, you know, so a small little technical issue really knocks me off my feet. Um, but uh, I'm happy we got today's show and I can't wait for you guys to listen to it. Before I do, thank you everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy, and thank you for following the podcast at Love with the Process Pod on Instagram. We have been, we had a crazy year last year on Instagram. Uh, our posts were reaching over 15 million people, 15 million people on our posts. So if you are a sponsor, a potential sponsor, an advertiser, uh, the, now's the time to jump on. You're a little late to the game right? Because now we're reaching bigger numbers, we're reaching more people, but now's the time to jump onto the game. And if you potentially want to have um, your equipment or your gear uh, advertised on the show, write to me at inlovewiththeprocess at gmail.com and uh, I'll take a look at your stuff because there's a very, very strict process of selection for our sponsors on the show. I have to believe in what it is that you're doing and it has to be uh, a great product or great thing that you're doing um, because uh, I try to filter out a lot of bullshit <laughs> for our listeners on this show. So send me an email over to uh, inlovewiththeprocess at gmail.com if you potentially want to become a sponsor of the show. Um, those of you listening, uh, I don't know when this episode is going to come out. It's probably going to drop in January. Um, hope you're having a great new year. And... Uh, what did you guys think of the metal slash um, synthwave playlist that we put together for you on Spotify? You can find that in lovewiththeprocess.com. Um, yeah, that whole thing came about from the episode that I recorded, which technically was yesterday, but I recorded back in December. Um, and uh, what was that, 284? And it was with the, the artist that uh, designs the Metallica t-shirts and him and I got real nerdy about metal. And, and right when I finished recording that episode and processing that episode, I went, ah, I should, I should make a fucking playlist. I should make a playlist. Because it, it blows my mind how many of uh, young folks that just don't know a lot of these metal bands. And I, I get it, right? Because they're not at the forefront, right? Pop sort of took over again. And, uh, you know, you had pop and hip hop sort of took over and then that became one thing and then country and hip and pop became one. So everything sort of became pop. And the only thing that didn't become pop is metal. And so that kind of fell back there. So I, I get it. I get, I get it when I say that out loud. There's probably a good reason why you guys don't know a lot of these acts. But good news, if you're looking for something aggressive, if you're looking for something cool and crazy and dangerous, uh, you should go to aloneoftheprocess.com and check out our cosmic metal synthwave playlist a lot of classics on that i think you guys i think some of you will really start to fall in love with some of the classics in the metal world um and uh, a lot of the best new stuff from synthwave all right enough mike let's get to today's show everybody's here to listen to some cinematography and you're in for a treat nicholas and i are about to go deep on the brand new episode of in love with the process
Hey, Nick, thanks for being on the show. How are you, man? I'm doing very well. It's been a crazy last few months uh, with the strikes, and I'm excited to see what this next year brings and uh, kind of watch how the industry shifts and mm-hmm. what sort of creativity you know, arises from this sort of period. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you, brother. Like, uh, it's been... It, dude, you, it, a, a crazy past few months. I feel like it's been a crazy past three years with everything oh, that's yeah. been going on, dude. Like, I I feel so spun around in this business that I'm like, uh, okay, what the fuck are we doing now? <laughs> yeah, there's so much. Yeah, I can't imagine. I've been doing this 10 years. I moved to Los Angeles 10 years ago, yep. um, originally from like Kentucky, South Carolina. And I just can't imagine start having started right before the pandemic or mm-hmm. immediately following it. And a lot of the work I was doing, I would say in my early career w- is not the sort of work that would have been shuttered by some of the strikes. Cause they're just, we were working pretty heavily non-union, mm-hmm. but it still had a ripple effect across everything. Commercials, yeah, um, you know, and features across the board. So Yeah, I feel very grateful in a way that I've been doing this long enough that I was able to kind of ride the tide of the strikes and the pandemic. But it's been, it's very much been this all or nothing. And everyone talks about that sort of feast or famine Mm. kind of experience. But this has truly been that. um, I mean, literally, I went from shooting back-to-back movies to not working for four months. Yeah, dude. And I needed the time off. I was pretty burned out, I would say. Yep. Um, But at the same time, it was also, there was that part of me that's like, all right, well, let's burn through this money I made on these movies (laughs) uh, and just see if I can survive until there's work happening again. Yeah, man. I mean, it's like, it's a little different uh, f- from a director's perspective, right? Because it just yeah. seems like that, you know, it takes fucking forever for a director to get something off the ground anyways. And, you know, you can have a project. I've got a few projects in development. You can have a project in development for fucking nine years, you know? Um, yeah. And so it, the only way that we survive is that we're trying to build as many baskets as possible and put as many eggs in those baskets as possible. And so, you know, through COVID and through all that stuff, I guess it was good that we could sit around and have the time to sort of develop things and sort of work on things. But then you're kind of feeling this whole thing now where, you know, the whole pen of us are starving and we're all racing towards one tiny doorway that's going to open or is open. And it's like, you know, who's going through it first and uh, how long is it going to take those people to go through it? And then when do these folks get interested in the projects again? And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to have my uh, my agents and my management go like right before we had a project that we're like, this thing's ready to rock. And they were like, don't send it out right now <laughs> because yeah. yeah, everybody's going to lose interest. Everybody's going to lose steam. And there are a lot of other filmmakers that I know that had projects that were either ready to jump or ready to rock. And then you go through either COVID or you go through the fucking strike and then they go back to the same people and they go, so what was this project again? It's like, motherfucker, we've been working on this for <laughs> forever, exactly. you know? So it's it's going to be, it, uh, I'm, I'm just happy that I don't have a piece that's like right there because I feel like a lot of these places are just cleaning slate and they're just like, mm, let's start yeah. fresh again. Yeah. And it's been, an, it, it, and you've seen it across the board in the industry, especially at Warner Brothers and some of, and, and Max, 
as they've tried to, you know, as corp large conglomerates have bought out and owned and tech companies have owned a lot of this sort of like, you know, media distribution mm-hmm. there. You've seen them clearing their slates. You've seen them writing movies off for tax, you know, for tax purposes. So it has been kind of a scary time as like creators and as, but at the same time, I would say people are hungry for great, interesting and, um, you know, kind of inventive, films and we've also had a year where we've seen you know even a film like Oppenheimer do smashingly well regardless of what you think of the movie it's incredible to see essentially a drama a period piece drama Mm -hmm. make nearly a billion dollars and so we do have yeah there's been a lot that's happened as well that you know and I I just went to the theaters and saw poor things and I'm going to see Jonathan Glazer's film this week oh which Um, one which one's his film Zone of Interest. Yeah, it just came out. Oh, I'm excited yeah. to see Zone of Interest. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, it just came out and no one's booked. Yeah, I'm like, no one's talking. I mean, I've, I've had a few friends talking about it, but I haven't seen a lot about it. And I'm, you know, I'm a huge Jonathan Glazer fan. Me too, man. Ever since Sexy. Um, he did Sexy Beast, right? Yeah. 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 And like, I mean, Under the Skin was like a really pivotal movie for me when I saw it. I saw it at Arclight mm-hmm. um, Hollywood, my, you know, and just like, God, I saw so many good movies at that theater. I'm just desperately waiting for them to reopen it. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been, yeah, I think, and like, you know, there's films coming out like Saltburn and a bunch of other movies that are just, we're, we are having a really amazing, uh, a bunch of amazing movies are releasing by me, like really incredible filmmakers, you know, and regardless of whether you like some of them, it's like Killers of the Flower Moon or whatever, mm-hmm. all of these films are just, there's some really, masterful filmmakers releasing films right now. And it's been exciting that we've kind of had that at least going, even while the strikes have been going and it, it sort of reiterates how important all of these actors, all important, these writers and storytellers really are. So yeah, yeah, it's been a crazy last three years for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious to see how it's all going to land. I really am. I'm curious to see how the industry is going to land too. I mean, we've been, It'll be interesting to see how the whole, you know, Marvel and the blockbuster thing sort of plays out. It'll be interesting to see if if we're finally going to get to a point with Hollywood where we're facing like a whole new thing. And it would be nice if that was the deal after this. Yeah. Like after everything we got put through, if it just sort of changed the way Hollywood was working for quite some time and we sort of fell into some sort of new renaissance, which I think uh, I'm hungry for. And, yeah, and, you know, it was it was interesting to, on a strange tangent here. I was watching this um, this clip last night or the night before last night on uh, Don Simpson and Jerry Brockheimer. And they were talking about how those guys, how Don Simpson specifically changed Hollywood in the 80s and how he created this specific formula for movies, which subconsciously I always knew it was there, but I really hadn't pointed it, hadn't had someone point it out to me, which was a specific formula that you see in everything that they've done from Flashdance to Top Gun all the way through. And it's, it's incredibly specific. But what they also did as producers is they tried to put an end really to the auteur. And they tried to yeah. put an end to the auteur director and they went through the process of of saying, no, the producers are in charge. The producers are the hot, the rock stars, and the producers are the ones that run this town. And um, 
it just sort of worked out because uh, most of the audiences were kind of tired of the cynicism that were coming from the auteurs from the 70s, which, yeah. was, which was fascinating. And then, you know, for that whole 10 years, for that decade, and I love the Don Simpson movies. Like, I love all that stuff that came out of it because I grew up as a kid watching, you know, Top Gun or Days of Thunder. And, yeah. and, and apparently it's Days of Thunder that ruined the whole thing for everybody. But <laughs> wild. I, it's wild, dude. It's a wild piece. It's online. It's on YouTube. Um, but they talk about how at the, very, at the very end of it, and it was Days of Thunder, it was the fact that uh, they were blowing so much cash. I think, they, I think that movie was originally budgeted, don't quote me, but I think it was 30 million to 40 million. They ended up costing them twice the amount, 70 million. <laughs> there are rumors wow. that Don Simpson built a gym down in Dakota, I think is where it was. They built a gym that said Days of Thunder over it so that they can get women, <laughs> so they can get ladies to show up. They partied every night. It was like Coke Central, and uh, <laughs> it just blew up. And then the movie failed. And so it was at that moment that ended, Days of Thunder ended the 80s films. It ended like that same formula. It ended all of that stuff. Um, and in the 80s, it was the producer trying to take over everything. And then I feel like as we got into um, our period, right? Because after the 80s, we were thrust into the the independent film auteurs, you know, the Tarantinos and the Kevin Smiths. The Sundance Kids. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, after that, the giant studios were then taken over by corporations and companies, and then they became the ones that wanted to have the control over everything. And that's kind of where we've been since, which is like, uh, you know, voting by committee, not really actually talking to an executive that has any control over anything, pitching to executives that have zero control over everything, and then still knowing at the at the end of the day, there's a big boardroom that is making two decisions. How much toilet paper are we selling today? And are we going to green light this thing or not green light this fucking thing? And so yeah, that's kind of where Hollywood's been since. And it would be nice if we had, uh, you know, another shift again. And hopefully another shift towards the creatives again, you know? Yeah, I'm, ho I'm hopeful. I've been, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of possibility. And it, it is still about, figuring out ways to get asses and seats in theaters. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, and so, and, and like, and just be able to make a return on these movies that get made. Yeah. 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 And it's also in a weird way. I feel like it's setting expectations for the audience a, a bit differently. Right. Yeah. The, right now the audience is kind of like, you know, do you want a cheeseburger or do you want a cheeseburger with a lobster tail on it? You know what I mean? <laughs> Just like, and the audience is like at first going, whoa, lobster tail. Yeah, give me that Robert Downey Jr. Give me that Chris Evans. Give me all that shit. Stack it on top. And now they're kind of like, well, okay. Uh, yeah. It's not good, though. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. That's my rant. First thing in the morning. <laughs> uh, well, but Nick, let's talk about you more, man. So uh, out of all the art things that you could have picked, out of all the outlets, why did you end up uh, falling into being a cinematographer? Yeah, that's a great question. I grew up in a home that had a, a real love of art. And I would say my dad had a master's in English literature. And there was he worked as an editor, all for religious publications. But he did. And there was censorship and there was... Um, 
you know, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home in the South. Oh, I was going to ask. So, yeah. Really yeah. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. So very like, you know, when, I mean, literally at a place that you weren't allowed to go to the movie theater, women couldn't wear pants. It was very conservative. Whoa. And okay. I, but at the same time, kind of in the midst of that, my, there was like a real love of theater in that community and Shakespeare was really loved. And then my dad was someone who, you know, introduced me to, everything from turn of the screw to uh you know i read also all of hawthorne and kafka and mm -hmm. hemingway and flannery o'connor and it's just like a bunch of literature and he loved literature and and also was someone that introduced me to a lot of movies i watched lawrence of arabia in like third grade and 2001 and you know in elementary school and those were because my dad wanted us to see those kinds of movies so there was like a lot of love of art was instilled in me very young and I was an avid reader. And then I started writing pretty substantially in high school. And um, one day a friend came over and was like, Oh, do you want to make a movie together? And I'm like, I, yeah, let's try it. And so we <laughs> picked up my parents, you know, camcorder, which I think was shooting on VHS or I think back or it was like those cameras that were like super it was like super eight or high eight that's what it was high eight, right 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 where it was like digital but they were like see it's anyway and so we would do in camera like edits where it's like shoot the shot and then you know because i didn't know how i didn't know non-linear editing i didn't understand how to edit yeah um outside of doing tape to tape and so i was doing like tape either editing tape to tape or just editing in camera was kind of what I started doing. And I would shoot it in, in just literally the tape, the high eight tape that we would shoot would be the whole piece. And so I actually learned a lot in that process. And oh, I started yeah. reading books about filmmaking and I started learning a lot about cutting and as a result of that. And then I actually worked for a religious organization. That's uh, this place called the creation museum. Hmm. Um, and I was there in high school working as a post PA and was also doing videography. And so I started to get my hands on some digital cameras. And then I went to school and studied electronic media and kind of a communications background. Um, and a lot of that was because I was still religious at the time. I'm not anymore. I was going to ask. Um, yeah. yeah, I kind of had a, yeah, I had a journey with it, but I, I would say I, you know, I'm very much interested in what brings people to religion, what brings people to a place of faith. I yeah. had a, you know, an, a really, robust faith for 25 years of my life and i um and was renegotiating what that faith was along the way and and sort of discovering new facets and what i wanted out of it and then eventually it just didn't work for me um and yeah, so it's interesting because what <clears throat> i i didn't come from a, a strongly religious family yeah. but my uh my parents were i think pretty smart about it and they you know because we grew up kind of catholic you know, yeah. and so my parents were like, look, you have to go do this now because we want you to be exposed to some sort of religious thing. Um, do, but don't feel like this is going to define you. Just go and, and and see what you think of it. And I think yeah. it was kind of a smart move on their part because you end up going there and you're not really seduced by it later. And you sort of understand like, okay, this is what it's all about. And I, I remember being a kid asking those questions, like you're in the space and you're like, yeah, but what about this? And they're just like, because they, because we say it so. And I'm like, okay, so that's kind of bullshit. And, <laughs> and so <clears throat> it was a, it was a, a smart move, I think on my parents' part, but it's also interesting because we, we just spent a lot of time in, um, in Provo, 
because we we our film yeah. got into uh, Film Quest and we were did ten episodes out there of the podcast. So we were oh cool. The joke was like if we don't come back Mormon, then they're doing a terrible job recruiting because <laughs> we were out there <laughs> for so long. Um, but we were just meeting a lot of like you know expats. <laughs> we were meeting a lot of like uh, people that sort of were coming out of the Mormonism thing, and it was kind of the same deal with them. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think having agency as a child is like, you know, that's, that's the thing. It gave you that opportunity of choice young. Yeah. And I think because of growing up, I mean, I didn't have a single, I I went to, you know, Christian schools through my entire educational background and was actually homeschooled some in high school. Hmm. And I, so actually homeschooling was valuable for me because it taught me to be self-motivated and learn. I was already self-driven, but it, it actually like, you know, taught me that all of my learning is going to be self-driven and I don't have to rely on other people for it. And there are things that I can decide I want to do and I can learn and take on and I don't need to have another person to teach me. And mm-hmm. I, and, you know, cinematography was something that kind of came into my life because I had started, been very interested in filmmaking and films. And, you know, I was even in high school was like, very much that nerdy kid that was like watching movies from everything from Battleship Potemkin and Seventh Seal to Gladiator and Lord of the Rings. And I was, it was also that era where they did all these extra features on Blu-rays and mm-hmm. DVDs and stuff. I don't think Blu-ray was a thing yet at that time. And then, um, I, and those commentaries and those behind the scenes things really ignited my passion and interest. And then I was also reading what little books there were that were available and so when I got to college, I was, was making shorts when I was in college in classes, even though I wasn't technically getting a film degree, I was at a small Christian school and it didn't, um, you know, it didn't have a very, uh, substantial film program, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but I, so at the time, everything I was doing was all on my own. It was writing, directing, editing, and, you know, I just didn't know what I was doing, but I was learning and I was growing and it did give me a background in a lot of different aspects of filmmaking. And then I ended up, you know, even, and and at the time it's like, I, all these religious places I'd been, it's like, I never even had a, like, I I kind of had to relearn so much and, and sort of, I, because like, I never had a single textbook in my educational life that taught evolution as a factual thing. Right. You know, it was right. all of them were very like, and so it was these ideas. And eventually I had to be like, so I think part of what came from that though was I'm very fascinated by ideology. I'm fascinated by, you know, uh, the ways in which ideology shapes who we become. I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by point of view and perspective because how you see the world is, uh, directly shaped by your experiences, by your, the stories you, you take in. And I would mm-hmm. say that reading and literature and movies and filmmaking and a lot of foreign cinema were a big influence on me, both empathetically and, uh, and emotionally and, and mentally understanding other points of view, other cultural mm-hmm. perspectives. And also, you know, I'm, I have four siblings and three of them are uh, queer. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I've been very blessed and fortunate to have the ability to vicariously by, because I love my siblings very much and I support them and, and who they are as they become people. I've been able to walk alongside those stories and watch the ways in which religion, 
caused trauma and shaped them yeah, in different ways. Yeah, you know, my yeah, sister yeah. had a very different experience of life than me as a fairly straight white man. You know, it's like my sister and my gay brothers had a very different experience. So yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, and there was a lot of shifting and turning there. And, and cinematography for me was just, I started by shooting with a camera and telling stories by doing that. And I think because there was a point at which the crew sizes started to get larger and I came to LA and did a internship and made a couple short films directed and wrote and shot a few. And that mm -hmm. was kind of my first time being on sets where I also interned on a set for this movie called Pete Smalls is dead, which had like Steve Buscemi, Peter Dinklage. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and was like, it was really cool for me to be able to see and see a movie being made in that way. But it also was my first time working with a crew size of, I think I had like, you know, 10 people on my crew, but it was the first time I didn't shoot something I directed. It was the first time I directed something I didn't write. And in the process, I realized I just was more interested in how to tell the story visually than I was in overseeing the arc of the performances and the arc of the, the narrative itself. And mm -hmm. that was kind of a turning point. And I actually had a professor at the time who said, you know, the way you're talking about this, I think you'd be a really incredible cinematographer. And I was like, I had never really considered that. Um, and I, I think I remember I was 21 when I learned who Roger Deakins was and like, <laughs> you know, and that was like the starting point of being like, oh, there's people who are really talented at this. And eventually, you know, you discover like Gordon Willis. So my learning around cinematography mostly came from, there was a four year period where I graduated in 2009, the economy mm -hmm. crashed and I got a job um, at the place I'd worked at in high school. I worked for the Creation Museum. And kind of in working there and seeing the dogma and seeing the place open and um, the way they treated people and what, you know, it's hard to change your ideology when it's your source of income. Yeah. And right. so <laughs> right, I, right, yeah. Right. And that so, must have been very difficult. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think that in the process, I actually, like, that was where a lot my faith sort of like dwindled and I, I walked away. And also walked away from working there. But in the time that I was there, um, I did have a lot of freedom around. It was a very small video production team. Um, I was very close to the people I worked with. And some of the people I worked with were big fans of John Cassavetes. And like I watched Evil Dead for the first time on a snow a day we were snowed in at the Creation Museum. <laughs> and I watched it at the Creation Museum in my boss's office. Like so like I was surprised the place didn't burst into into flames. Right. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. We would yeah, like and we even, you know, I was able to use a lot of, they were buying DSLRs because the DSLR revolution had kind of just happened. Right. And, and I had started shooting on the 5D and the 7D, and then we were starting to rent the Red M and then the Red MX and then the Red Epic. And so as we would do jobs for the Creation Museum, I would take gear and then my friend and I would go and shoot stuff. And so eventually what I, like I got to a point where, where I realized I wanted to leave and I was thinking about staying in, the Midwest and staying in the South or something like that. But I did this, like I basically put together um, an Excel spreadsheet of all the production companies in the Midwest that were from Chicago to, uh, you know, Nashville. And I was just like, none of these production companies and none of the DPs I'm seeing that I'm finding are shooting the kind of material I want to shoot. And yeah, so smart. I reached out to people in New York and LA that I knew and they all said, yeah, you got to be in New York or LA if you want to be a DP and you want to be successful doing this. And so I, and I, I don't think that's exclusively true, but I think that general logic holds. Well, yeah, true. I mean, come, I mean, come on at the end of the day, 
it, it really is about networking and it really yeah. is about making sure that you're, cause you're talking to a guy that spent nine to 18 years as a director and ran a production company out of Boston. And there is a yeah. glass ceiling or there is a ceiling no matter yeah. where you are, if you're not in the cities that simply you can just go, Hey, you want to get a beer on Tuesday? Yeah, let's go get a beer on Tuesday. And exactly. I mean, really that's where a lot of the deals start to happen is when you're accessible and especially as a filmmaker and as a director, a lot of this stuff comes through last minute and a lot of this stuff comes through at the back end. And so if I'm trying to call you and you're, you're wherever the fuck, if you're in Montana and I'm like, Hey, can you be here tomorrow? Cause I'm going to pitch you to this producer. We're going to have beers with this producer. And you're like, yeah, I gotta get a flight. I got it. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't yeah. Happen that way. Yeah. And I, so I made the decision and talked to my wife about it and, um, Los Angeles, I knew more people here and it was a little more spread out and, um, it's also a little cheaper than New York city. And my older brother had was living in New York city at the time. So I visited him and it wasn't a good fit for me. And so I moved to LA like 10 years ago, sold everything and just took what I could fit in my car and then got a really tiny studio apartment. And I lived there for 10 years because rent was great and it was tough with two dogs and a a partner to live in a (laughs) studio, but, um, it was the right choice. And I always knew, you know, I started, I was really terrified at first because I'd never done it. I'd saved up enough money that I could go six months, um, without booking anything and I'd be okay. Yes. And so I did that and I saved up enough that, you know, we could move in and all those costs. And then with that, and then, my partner got a job pretty quickly, which was helpful because they were, even though they're working in a nonprofit, we had a stable income. And so I, but I had deep anxiety and fear when I started and I was doing a lot of, um, I was just figuring so much out. You know, I, mm. I started with just a reel cause I didn't want anyone to know I'd worked at a religious organization. Right. Um, and right. cause I just didn't want to be perceived that way. And I, I've always wanted to make the movies like, you know, movies like Seven and Kozlowski's Blue and, you know, a range <laughs> of films, right? The, but dark drama and thrillers and science f- fiction and horror and, and, and thrillers, you know? And so I, I just, and I wanted to make dark images that had, you know, this rich contrast and, and sort of a painterly naturalism. I was always drawn to that, but I didn't know how to do that or access it. And I also needed to make a living. So yeah. I shot all sorts of Craigslist jobs and Mandy jobs. And I forgot my first movie off of Mandy. And it was with this, you know, the movie's never released. And the director was the son of an oil man and just really a <laughs> kind of a crazy person on set. I would say like, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but yeah, yeah he was just like, I think he was doing drugs like for a lot of the movie, yeah. but you know, I was working six day weeks. I was driving the three ton grip truck. I did run into a gas station because I didn't check the clearance site. Yeah. Cause I'm not used to driving trucks. Yeah, after that though, I was like, I told every production, I'm like, you don't want me driving your trucks. You hired me to shoot your movie. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I did a lot of eight, small indie movies, like half million dollar movies. And I just kept hoping one of them would take or one of them would go. And it took me about, it took me six movies to shoot one that I was like, this is actually a movie that I'm really proud of as uh, a filmmaker. And also not just the visuals, like the, the, cause I had learned a lot on those six movies and shooting a lot of short films. And I really developed my voice and my style in the process of making those. And that yeah. was kind of film school for me. Yeah. But and then it, you know, eventually I finally did shoot a movie. I was proud of the film as a film. And, um, that was five films ago. And I, every one I've done since then have been movies that 
flawed or not are prop, you know, are projects that I, I stand behind and, and stand behind the filmmaking. And, um, you know, I'm learning all the time and you have a lot of challenges on every project, but, um, it's just been literally in the last two years since the pandemic, I've shot four movies. That's cool. Um, you know, I, I booked a tiny shutter movie in 2020, December, 2021. That's out. It's out now, but it was called spoonful of sugar. And then I, four months after that, I shot a like $5 million movie, but we only had $500,000 for the production because it all went to actors, but (laughs) movie with, uh, John Travolta and Steven Dorff. And we shot it in 11 principal days of principal photography and three days of, uh, pickups. So that's the fast I've ever shot a movie. <laughs> My God, man. So yeah. wow, what a crazy, so that's, that's Bob land, right? That's that one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah originally it was American metal and then Saban because they're, uh, terrible with marketing, uh, changed the title and yeah, right. Made it into mob. You know, land. Yeah. I was like, guys, Jesus. And it's a shit poster. We had such a beautiful poster that the director's, a, you know, he worked as a designer for shepherd fairy before he started working as a commercial photographer. And then this was his first movie and he'd written it and, you know, and they just, you know, I'm proud of the movie. I'm proud of what we did. We always went in knowing we would not make, our best movie because we were given 11 days, but we were like, you either make this movie with John Travolta and Steven Dorff as your debut film. Yeah. Or you, or you don't get to make a movie, you know? And so we were like, let's give it a shot. And, um, that's crazy. When you talk about, when you talk about that budget, (laughs) that's fucking nuts. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And then I booked saw, um, X in September of 2022 two i think and then i was in uh or maybe august but and then i was in mexico city for i think for 13 weeks for the first time and then we shut down for december and then we came back and oh, shot the rest in so that's January. where you guys sh- that's where you guys shot it was down in mexico city yeah yeah we got we sh- we ended up we ended up hiring basically it took we ended up shutting the movie down for a month because they needed more time for prosthetics and we had already done enough prep work because they switched product, the prosthetics company while we were prepping mm-hmm. and we ended up with an amazing company called fractured effects that did everything from oh, I know just saw they did yeah they did fall of house of usher they did yep. uh, eyes of tammy faye they did um westworld i mean they're fantastic and you see it when you see the prosthetics. You're like, yeah, these prosthetics cost whatever they, whatever tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars you had to spend. There's a reason. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we shot down in Mexico City. We did six day weeks for prep and production. And then how was how was Mexico City? I've never shot in. I've never been to Mexico City. Yeah, yeah, Mexico City's gorgeous. It's a huge sprawling metropolis that goes on endlessly, and it kind of feels like you're in parts of it feel like Europe because they were the Spanish sort of influences and parts of it feel like, um, it's, it's the most, it's one of the three most heavily trafficked cities in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, I always had a driver and there's amazing production crew there. I've, I, I worked with an incredible camera team that I'd, I'd actually shot a movie in Mexico city um, early in my career, the uh, crime thriller. And mm-hmm. so I ended up hiring a lot of those same people because they'd all been working for, you know, the seven years since I had done the movie and 
when I was asking the producers and the ADs for names, they gave me the names of the people I'd already hired. (laughs) And I was like, that's amazing. That means these people, I remembered them being good and it meant that they were. Um, But this first AC, Sitbali Vargas, she was pivotal because she, most of my camera team, I met through her and we had, you know, our B camera uh, assistant, Vanessa. And then we had like some, it was just great. I had two female first ACs and then, um, I had this, uh, you know, my, I tried to get an American operator who lives in Mexico onto the job, but I, I couldn't get him on, but I ended up with some amazing operators. Um, this guy, Edgar Luzanini and some other people. And then mm-hmm. the one, the biggest challenge I would say I faced in Mexico, you can get anything you want. Um, you'll all, you have amazing crew. People work six day weeks as a regular thing. It's, you know, as a filmmaker, there's parts of me that love it and parts of me that hate it. Um, you don't get enough rest on the weekends and mm. you don't, you normally like love five day week because day six, I rest and day seven, I prep. Yeah. Right. But when right. I do that, I'm fucked. Like I, I end up prepping and you just never stop working and you just kind of run yourself into the ground. I got COVID food poisoning. I had two eye infections. Like oh my it's God, a dude. real, yeah, it was, it took a, I mean, it took a toll because the city has a lot of pollution and it has, yeah. it's, you know, it's got a beautiful history of beautiful people. And I love the city. Um, and I like making films there and would like to make another movie there for sure. Um, I How? ran into some translation challenges occasionally because I don't speak Spanish and sure. my gaffer and his team didn't really speak a lot of English, but um, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it, it's a very rope. There were 40 U S productions there when I was there. right time to take a hot second and we're going to talk about the sponsors of our show uh our show today is sponsored by our friends over at puget systems if you're in the business for a new computer if you're in the business uh to build yourself an edit machine uh build yourself a pc go to pugetsystems.com there you can choose a computer based upon the software you're going to use uh so if you're going to build a premiere system if you're going to build an adobe photoshop system uh, Puget System has baseline packages that you can then customize. And this is the power that comes with this company. These, uh, The men and women that work at this company have beta tested. They have benchmark tested. They know how software works with new hardware. And it's an open market for them. They're not selling you shit that they manufacture. So they know prices. And so talk to them. And when you sort of run it up and you go, wow, that's a high price tag. It may not need to be that high. You may be able to build something a lot simpler. Puget Systems, I think I think they're still doing consulting too. I think you can pay them 500 bucks for cons- consultation on how to build your own system as well. They're a really great fucking resource. So go to pugetsystems.com, check them out. Also supporting the show, our friends over at Blackmagic. So we were talking about computers. What are you editing on? Are you color grading in uh, Resolve? Are you using DaVinci Resolve? It's Blackmagic that makes that stuff. Not only do they make great cameras, uh, like their 6K large format, 6K pro camera which we have um but uh they do the best color grading the best color grading uh, program out there for everybody and the the software's free dude you can get that software for free um the hardware is what costs a little bit of cash but once you start playing around with that software once you get uh, a system down for yourself you're going to want the hardware you're going to want the control panels you're going to want all that stuff black magic design is a great company uh, they've been with us for a little while now, and they not only are sponsoring us, but also sponsoring projects from us. Um, so we have nothing but great things to say about it, man. A company that is supporting the arts, man. What do you know? Black Magic Design. 
Also supporting the show is uh, Fujifilm, another great company, makes amazing cameras. Fujifilm's uh, GFX 102, their large format camera. I love Fujifilm's color profiles. Whew, I love their color profiles. Um, their lenses, their autofocus. Um, like we found them last year, they came on board um, and we hunted out for a camera that shot amazing large format stills and also shot beautiful video uh, because uh, Gina does a lot of that stuff, combination of both. Um, and Fujifilm was who we found. We love those cameras. So if you guys are in a market for a still camera that also does really great video, really great video, uh, check out Fujifilm and go back and listen to our Fujifilm creator series and you'll listen to all the different directors and uh, short films that Fujifilm has financed and helped get off the ground. So there's a reason why they're a sponsor on the show because they really do give a shit about us as creatives. Fujifilm, check them out. Also supporting the show are friends over at Boca Rentals, the, the place to rent your camera gear. If you're a young uh, filmmaker, if you're a young cinematographer, and you're looking for a rental house here in Los Angeles, and after the strike and after COVID, what rental houses are still up and running and what rental houses are desperate and who actually gives a shit about young folks, Boca Rentals is the place to go. I'm telling you right now, they have a new shop out here on the east side of Los Angeles, um, which we use all the time. Uh, go check out Boca Rentals. They have every kind of lens. Their inventory of anamorphics are amazing. Uh, all the lenses that are used to shoot your favorite shows and your favorite movies, they're in the inventory at Boca. Not only that, but it's the only uh, authorized dealer on the West Coast for Snorri Cam, which is big, and their uh, camera support systems are amazing. Uh, so I'm telling you right now, just spend some time, even if you're not working, even if you don't have a job, get down there and say hello, form a relationship with the folks over at Boca Rentals, all right? The links for all these folks are in the description of today's episode and they're trackable links. So while you're listening to me doing these ad reads, just scroll down to the description of the episode and click the links and open them up. Do it for me. It lets them know that you guys are listening. Keeps them around. It's important. Uh, finally, um, if you're a newcomer to the show and you're like, man, this cinematography episode talks about stuff that I've never heard before from any other podcast about cinematography. It's probably true. And we're friends with the big ones, Cinematography Salon are our pals, right? So we try to tackle uh, conversations from a different place. I try to tackle them from a place of a director and of a creator. And so whether I'm talking to cinematographers or talking to actors or talking to chefs or talking to firefighters, it's all coming from a place of curiosity from someone that does this stuff or is completely curious about this sort of thing. Uh, so if you're a newcomer to the show, go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. I've curated episodes by subject material there. It's also a great place to go for supplemental material when you're listening to the show. So if you want to see behind the scenes images or trailers or all that kind of stuff, I try to put up web pages for each one of the episodes. They're all up there. It's a cool site. It's a fun site. Lots of cool stuff there, man. Um, that's also where our superfans blog is. All sorts of fun shit. So inlovewiththeprocess.com. Come. Let's get back to the show.
how safe is uh, Mexico City now? Is it is it now a safe place to be? Because I know at one period of time, you know, you had to have all sorts of security with you, and it was a pretty big deal as far as, you yeah. know, showing up with money and then being in a, in a place. At one point, I don't know if it's still this way, but at one point it was like the kidnap capital of the world. Is that still the deal? It, you know, that may be the case. I don't know. I don't think... I mean, Mexico City is... Um, it's safe, but it's there are unsafe areas. So, yeah. like in general, I would say tour the touristy parts like uh, Condesa and Roma Norte and stuff like that are pretty heavily policed and fairly safe. I mean, there is obviously there's corruption in the mm-hmm. you know in the government. There's I mean, their bribes are a real thing, and I multiple people working on the production and friends like have told me you know about i mean they've just even negotiated with the police where it's like they got pulled over for something and they're like hey like this is the ticket but you can pay me this much and it's like well Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna pay you that much but i'll pay you this much um so that's a real thing my experience living there for four months i never had a single instance where i felt unsafe and Mm -hmm. um i didn't but i you know i also was and i went out at night and i went out like and hung out with you know met people and hung out with people and mm. went to clubs and bars and but i i was also you know having a perspective i think the city is similar to la like if you were to go to certain parts of la sure, it's just not sure. a smart move and um yeah i think there was a lot of frankly on the U- the us people that came to mexico city for the production i felt like there was some degree of um stigma that people brought to the table i tried not to bring that to the table and i Mm -hmm. I really didn't have an experience that made me in any way feel unsafe so i do think you know your money does stretch further there because at the end of the day the rates are um they're they're actually fairly competitive to la and i would say they're um but there's no overtime and there's no unions right and also and also like and in our case like we would never we would always do a 12 hour day and that that day started when breakfast started so <laughs> and lunch was on the clock mm-hmm. so it, it was also once again both challenging and frustrating at the same time because i actually i wrapped this movie in mexico and then i came to the u.s i was here for a month and then i went and shot a movie in georgia and we had six day weeks on that movie mm-hmm. and i was working worse hours on that american six hour you know six day week movie than in Mexico because um, they were able to, you know, your lunch is off the clock. So our 12 hour day is actually like 13 and a half hours by the time you, you actually put it all together. Well, this is, this is interesting. This seems to be because, well, I mean, to give you a little history on me, when I started in this business, I started, I trained as a director, but then I taught myself uh, photography and then I ended up becoming a cinematographer for a while Oh, wow. And so I did shoot, I, I, I shot one feature as a cinematographer and it kind of like, it was such a traumatizing experience as far as uh, dealing with production and the safety issues. And, and it seems like everybody has these stories, you know, when you get, st- you get started in this business. And I mean, like I got shot in the face by a blank gun. Uh, it was on top of a oh, truck Jesus. that they pulled off. Uh, my gaffer was blown across the room trying to tie in. Like it was a really, really intense shoot. And after that, I was kind of like, I don't want to fucking shoot features. And and then I w- only would shoot documentaries or, or small pieces. And then I was like, I got to direct. And so I was 100% focused on directing. But 
knowing that stuff, I understand what you've been going through, at least in the early stages. But I also understand that I think one of the biggest challenges as for a cinematographer and for their, their team and their crew is, uh, you know, being talented and having the skills and putting in the thousand hours or 10,000 hours and, and, you know, knowing how long things take, knowing, um, you know, what is the best situation that you need to be able to safely do these things. And then it seems like, you know, especially with the streaming services and more recently now, the big challenge is confronting these fucking ridiculous schedules and these ridiculous turnaround schedules and, you know, having your teams, uh, you know, try to be as talented as possible, but also do it while running a marathon at the same time and trying to keep that stamina up. Yeah. Um, it's been incredibly difficult. And this is a, uh, you know, a, a running narrative with all cinematographers that I've had on this show. It's just like, we're never given enough time. It's like the clients know exactly what it's going to take, but then they will pay you 20% less. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. they will overwork you by, you know, two or three, four hours a day. Do you feel that's the, that's the case? I mean, I sort of look at it as, I think that's all true, but I also, you know, I'm, um, I went into saw X knowing that it was my biggest film I'd ever done. It was mm -hmm. the most amount of money I was going to make on a movie that I'd ever made, even though it was lower than, you know, the rate was probably lower than it should have been for the six day weeks and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and also I knew that it, it would, it would be my first, you know, studio film yeah. and my first film that would get a wide release. So I went in with, you know, ready, ready to accept what all of those things meant and knowing that our money would go further. And I just try to treat the crew with a lot of, you know, respect and kindness and, um, I really tried to enlist them into the, into the process. And that's the reality. The reality of making films is you do, I, I sort of know that when I'm going to make a film, I'm going into a marathon where my mind, my emotions and my body are all at the mercy <laughs> of the project. Yeah. And I, and I know that like, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I, and I accept that when I go onto the film because I also am probably my own harshest sort of, uh, I've had to learn that self-care is essential. I, yeah, I yeah. you know, I, I had to learn that you have to let it go sometimes and not hold everything so closely. And, you know, and on, on Sox, we had 33 days, which was also my longest film. Most of my movies have been 20, 18 to 21 days, just because mm -hmm. the range ranges I've been shooting in. Um, but even on saw, you know, that ends up feeling like you're shooting the major trap sequences are mostly being shot in like a day to a day and a half for each trap. Mm -hmm. And so you're having to really, you know, we test them in advance to make sure all the pieces are working. We usually, we did, I think two to five tests for every trap. Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of lighting and shooting that I'm, you know, we're running two cameras the whole time. I'm lighting in a fairly 360 way, which the brutality of the saw look kind of helps. And frankly, mm -hmm. every time I tried to clean it up too much, it stopped feeling like saw, yeah. but it, it was kind of a, yeah, I, I just accept that going in and, you know, I'm, I'm talking about a few movies right now with people. And I know that part of the process that I have to accept is I, 
the cost of doing the movie and then the cost of, and what it takes on my personal life and my emotional space and everything. And my, you know, my value as an artist. And then also the burnout that is going to come from working nonstop for three months. And then in the case of the last film, I, you know, I did saw X and then I had a month and then I went back out and spent two months making another movie. And I don't regret that decision. It's a director I'd already worked with um, and a relationship that really matters to me. And, and the movie is we're coloring it right now at um, company three and it's Mm -hmm. been, Mm -hmm. it's a really fun midnight movie. It's a great horror film, Um, funny, entertaining, all those things. And, but I did, you know, I burned out pretty hard after doing two movies in a row where I was doing on six day weeks and uh, you know, both saw I had 10 weeks of prep on bone Lake. I had three weeks of prep. And so you're just, you basically work nonstop. And what is uh what does burnout look like for you? Like what, what does that mean? Um, I stopped being interested in watching movies. Um, I don't like, I stopped reading. I think the, you know, I don't, my interest in filmmaking is still there and my interest in telling stories and, visually constructing things is there but when i'm hungry and i'm not burned out i i'm regularly going to the theaters i'm going to art museums i'm kind of just invested more in my own creative journey Mm -hmm. and my and i ended up i didn't see my family like i just had kind of for me ended up meaning i i ended up taking a few trips i went to joshua tree i went to the redwoods i nice um i just had to kind of let go and the strikes kind of created a natural breaking point where you know and i because of i basically i haven't shot a job in la at this point in over a year and a half um it's all been out of state Mm -hmm. and so some of it was reconnecting with my family my friends um getting a dog i lost a dog while i was in mexico on saw which was right a week before we shot and so I had to process that grief and I'd had him for 10 years and then, Oh man, I, I'm sorry uh, about that. That sucks. Yeah. I adopted another a dog about a year to the day, not to the day, but pretty close after. And so it's just, you know, it's going through all of that and, and sort of the experience of everyone you love life continues going while you're away making this thing. And, and I think, you know, in the case of saw, there was no premiere because of the strikes and mm-hmm. it did release in theaters and I went and saw it with friends, but there is a sense of, um, you know, it, there is a, there, there was like a, even after watching the movie and having it coming out after all the pomp and circumstance and the excitement, there was like this sort of hole yeah. of yeah. like, you know, and, and I've talked with, uh, I think you interviewed Oren Soffer. I've talked with him about it mm-hmm. some because we were both like, you know, we both had movies released on the same day. He shot the creator and um, saw released the same day. And mm-hmm. we, and I think both of us are really proud of the work we did and we've known each other for about seven years. And so it was exciting to be able to celebrate that with each other. But then also I think both of us were like, you know, it's not the same as neither of us have kids, but it's not the same as postpartum depression, but there's a sense of like, there is though. Yes. Giving this full investment of self and life. And, you know, it's like I, I weathered changes in my relationships, changes in my personal life to make these movies. And then you're sort of left just like putting it out there in the world. And that's that. And, 
Um, yeah, (laughs) I think, I think it's, yeah. And I'm like, and in a way it feels like I never did it at all, but that's not true. It's just, you know, I have Blu-ray, the Blu-ray of saw like on my (laughs) thing and I'm like, I shot that, but it's, it's a weird, it's weird. And I, I would say, yeah. So I, I think, well, that is, yeah. Well, look, it's true. I mean, I feel it anytime I do something. And, um, yeah. you know, my fiance, she, like I said, she's a photographer and a director. She works in the business too. And so the both of us yeah. have these conversations and we're, we, w- the benefit of us both being in the business is that we understand what we're going to go through. And, um, at first, whenever I would do a project to do a piece, you put everything into it, as you said, right. And it's, yeah, especially when you're a cinematographer, you're a director or you're a creator or a writer, you're, you're giving birth to this thing. It's coming out of you know, every corner of your brain, right? And so um, when you go through this process, you're obsessed with it. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing a child into this world creatively. And um, when, you, <laughs> when you release it and when it gets dropped, most of the time, if you're doing stuff on a smaller scale, most of the time it just goes on someone's fucking phone. And then, you know, they watch it real quick and they go, okay, that was cool. And then they open up Instagram and they continue swiping through something else. And even uh, with our last piece that we just did, we shot this short, which was in FilmQuest. I was so happy to have gone to a film festival and watch it with an audience, and we won some awards for it, and all that was incredibly satisfying. But even at that moment, like, I was, uh, you know, I had it, because we won best, I won best director for it, which was great, and, and I'm headed in the back room, and I'm sort of holding this statuette and waiting to have my picture taken and and I was just prepping myself at that moment just going like remember tomorrow this is done like tomorrow this is like enjoy it here and I was incredibly focused on being in the moment for each and every part of that experience because I said this savor this because tomorrow you're unemployed again and I think that every time we do these jobs that's the case and you look at legends like Ridley Scott right and you look at this guy who they spend so much time and energy over at his company stacking his projects. So he's just got like, it always feels like he's got a new movie release happening oh, always. <laughs> right, right when he fucking wraps out his last one, you know? And, and, um, but he's in a very fortunate situation. I think most of us have to process the fact that like, it requires every ounce of us to make these things. And if we don't put every ounce of us into it, then it shows on screen and it shows with yeah. motivation but then we also have to be prepared to go, all right, I'm about to fall off the back end of this. And I could very easily fall into depression, especially with me where I go, all right, I'm exhausted. I'm just going to climb into bed and I'm going to yeah. climb into bed and I'm going to fucking sleep. Right. And so my mode is like, I'll, I'll sleep for a week. And then, you know, you get into like day two or three and you're starting to get too comfortable in that, I'm shutting off from the world and I'm, I'm going to sleep in this world. And then you start to, at least I do, I start to hear the voice starts to crawl into my head where it's just like, what are you doing with your fucking life? <laughs> like, you're yeah, just totally. like, like, oh fuck, what have you done today? And so then that anxiety starts to needle its way in again. And what me and my fiance have been trying to do is we've been trying to be healthier about it. It's sort of understanding like, hey, look, we're about to crash out at the back end of this let's do other life things that are just as exciting when we come out of the back end of this yeah. and, and, and not fall into this hole. Like, do we do a trip? Do we travel? Do we uh, focus on doing a project together at, at, at home? Is there something that we could be working on together? 
and doing. And I think it's great to hear that you were trying to connect with your friends and, and do that. I find that I find comfort and solace just booking myself out almost as busy as I was on the movie and just saying like, I'm, go I'm going to have beers with like five different people this week. I'm going to hang out with all these different folks just to keep my adrenaline up because I, I, the other people that feel this way are, are rock stars. Like I have a lot of friends that uh, are musicians and, and uh, tour and they do big shows on stage. And they always say the same thing that we're, we're talking about where they're like, after the tour finishes, uh, it'll come and it'll be like five o'clock at night. And that's r normally right when we're doing sound check that I'll have to start drinking. I'll start out like I'll start to feel that something's missing from my life. Um, oh, and yeah. it's, it's, it's a big part of what we do, you know? Yeah, I do. Th I think it is. I think what I've, what I've sort of had to like work at and grow, and this has been a 10 year, you know, process. And I think it, we constantly change as people and we evolve and we, you know, and we, we take steps back and we, I think in being self-reflective and in being an artist, this is, these are essential moments and you're kind of look at nature, right? It, <laughs> you know, there's the spring, there's the fall, the autumnal dying and release. Then there's the death of winter and then the rebirth of spring again. And so you, I think it, it, some of it was, you know, some of it is, knowing like what are those habits what are those patterns what are those things in your life that make your life worth living that have nothing to do with this business and industry yeah. and when yeah. you get and when you start to get excited about your life again uh you can start to get excited about making things again and and i would say that happened for me um maybe a couple months ago uh, but not but it did take a good long while and i think there's there a lot of what's been valuable and helpful have been, I, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to everything in the book, but like the artist way mm -hmm. was something I read a long time ago. And I revisit it occasionally because journaling is just getting in touch with yourself is extremely valuable. You know, if therapy, if that's something you're willing, you know, mm -hmm. you're interested in or want, it's like self-reflectivity of that. And also having a safe space that you can kind of process all your weird and create, you know, kind of, your worst versions of self in. And then I, I'm a fairly regular with working out and meditation, but it's more for me, less about the workout and whatever. It's more like I know as a person, I need movement every day. Yeah. I need emotional and mental stimulation every day. Yeah. And, and like, I would much rather go for a walk than run on a treadmill because I want to see the sights of the earth. I want to see leaves and flowers and animals. So hiking and I've, I, I hiked, six mountains in Southern California this last um, over the course of, since I wrapped saw and it's like, you know, things like that have really brought the adventure that I feel of making a movie and yeah. the excitement I feel of an adrenaline. I feel of location scouting and studying people. And frankly, when I make a movie, every movie I make is a study of the director. It's a mm -hmm. study of, you know, here's someone else who's been spent their life devoted to this. However long they, you know, sometimes I worked with directors 10 years younger than me. And sometimes I worked with people 20 years, my senior mm -hmm. and I'm, but I'm studying who are they as a person, what got them into this creatively, what got them into this project. And that's part of how I understand the project. And that's how I understand what the vision is, but that character study of a, in, in intimate study of a human being is also a part of what I love about the process. And I love, just, I actually love the collaboration with a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. I do, you know, I can't deny that I also love the, and much like you're saying about a rock, the rock star thing. It's like, 
I feel like a very fully enlightened, alive version of self when I'm on set, like lighting and yes. playing the playing the lights. You yes. know, it's like yes. when I'm doing that, I feel alive. So yep. I do look for other ways to connect with that. And I've taken up drawing again and, you know, some of those sort of things. Um, and I have... I would say my interest in movies, like it, it went on this, it hit the doldrums for a bit, but then slowly and assuredly, it's like, it's come back and it's raging again where I'm just like, ah, I love movies and I want to see these things. And so I do think it's just being really, you know, knowing a, that we have limits. Cause I, I think when I was younger, I just didn't accept that I had limits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and like, was like, yeah, I can fucking do anything. And it's like, no, actually um, <laughs> I can't, you know? And like, and I'm not driven by, we all need money to survive, but money isn't what drives me creatively. Sure. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's, it sounds like you and your fiance are like on a journey that's been really helpful and healthy. And well, we've been um, trying, man, we've been trying. It's been like a, it's been a long journey of like, you know, you mentioned therapy and I definitely had to, to start taking therapy because of this business. And I, I went yeah. through the process of doing it. And uh, thankfully I did because this business really takes you down into a dark place. Um, and especially when it comes to getting movies greenlit and, and like sort of the nonchalantness of this business, sort of tossing things away and um, you know, and then self value and I, I oh, yeah. it's a fucking worse, man. And, and the thing therapy was very helpful for me. It, it, it strengthened my bond and my relationship with my fiance, but also really helped me sort of process the limps, like the emotional limps that I had, like the, 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 the things that I would just sort of fall back on that mm-hmm. I had created for myself, not knowing, you know, and just being There's like unconscious pattern. Exactly. Yeah. And you're just like, Oh, this is how I'm sort of processing this grief, or this is how I'm processing this stress. Um, and, and it was very successful for me with that. The thing that really saved me though, um, was making stuff again. And I, I think I, cause I have a lot of friends that are cinematographers too. And I know that yeah. you, you guys work a lot more than we do. So like you could have a, a year where you do four projects in a year, you know, and yeah. we'll have four years where we do one project. And, and, and most of our work as a director is this whole, you know, mouth shit that we do where, where we're constantly out there just talking our way into rooms, talking our way into spaces, like uh, coming up and conceiving ideas, sitting in a very lonely situation where you're by yourself and you're like, writing treatments or you're putting together ideas and, and, and then getting into general meetings or, or, or getting on phone calls with folks. And then you have the ups and downs with your management, your agent teams where, Oh, congratulations, just working. Oh no, it's not in like two hours. And so you were on this fucking crazy roller coaster ride. And, and I was on that ride, especially with fucking COVID and everything else. It's like four years, four plus years of, of riding oh, yeah. where I wasn't shooting. And so, uh, for me, it's sort of, I, I hit this point where I go, what, what am I, do, what do I do? Is this what I do? Am I sitting around in a, a desperate mode? Because that's where your business puts you is in this desperate yeah. mode where it's like, all right, so atomic monsters making a movie about fucking someone in a swimming pool. Am I supposed to be writing swimming pool treatments now? And then you sort of go through this whole process of, of desperately hunting to get in. 
Um, and then you realize after a couple years of doing that, you go, oh, oh shit, man, my mindset's wrong. I'm not having fun doing any of this stuff. I'm just chasing trends and I'm, I'm trying to chase trends because that's what I've been suggested to do by my people because they're looking for the easiest path in for stuff. Yeah. What I need yeah. to do is I need to step back and not give a fuck anymore. And I need to really play it further back and sort of examine what is it that I like about this business? What is it that yeah. I like to do in this business? And then what are the kind of stories that I want to tell? Don't give a fuck whether or not culturally in the moment anybody gives a shit about your stories because that, our culture changes so quickly at this point. Oh, uh, yeah. Like spend time with it. And, and so for me, um, you know, really getting lost in directing actors and creating characters became my obsession. And then, you know, we were able to create this short film that we shot in the garage and shot here in the house. And um, that really pulled me out, man. And it, 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 it took me a while to get pulled out of the insanity that Hollywood had created for me. But when I went through the process of that, uh, I think I was in the edit and I was pretty far into the edit and I was sort of assembling a scene and I went, oh, fuck yeah. And, and th like I started to feel that thing that you were talking about where you, you get turned on when you're lighting the sequences. I, I feel the same way with that. I'm a, I'm a yeah. lighting nerd. I love that shit. But I felt it in the edit room again. And I was constructing a character. And I was it was between like two or three different shots. And there was the small, beautiful, unplanned for... Uh, details that that lance my actor was giving me and i went oh wow there's someone here and and like i actually sort of fell into the screen again and in a weird way unlike an audience when you fall into a character i was able to fall into the character be completely aware that i was in with the character and then shape and manipulate what that character did and that was like the high for me it was like fuck cool there's yeah there's like a real sense of um extreme presence in yes. those moments yes. and that's part of the beauty of it is is feeling and i some some part of me loves the chaos of being on set you know time is money and all this <laughs> shit and you know and like the early morning call times and the like some part of me does love that um but it, it comes back to this yeah it's like i think even doing those little projects where you're like you know it's that whole thing one for the real one for the meal yeah you got to do those things. Like that's part of why, like even my friends who do music videos and stuff, I haven't done a music video in a few years now, mm -hmm. but I'm always like, Oh yeah. If something cool comes up, I'm that just like excites me or intrigues me. I want to do it because those experiences, like, you know, one of my, probably my favorite music video I ever shot. I made no money on the director and I put our rate back in so we could shoot on 16 and mm -hmm. we, you know, and it was amazing experience. I hired friends and, you know, the project turned out really fantastically. And those, those become some of the spaces that you can creatively express yourself and take risks. I think it, and then that gives you the strength and the strength in your own point of view and your own perspective on the world to be able to go and, you know, you can be on a, you know, $10 million movie or $13 million movie or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, just trust that you'll take risks and make decisions that are uh, that aren't playing it safe because you've you know you've been building that kind of muscle and it, and it yeah I think finding because there's this other side which is we have a shelf life in this career like 
you know, no matter who you are or what you are, there's a point at which I won't be able to pick a camera up at. And there is a trans, you know, transience to it all. Um, and I want to live that, you know, I want to live with gusto and enjoy the things that I love while I can. And there's another part of me that knows if I can't, and the pandemic really taught me a lot of this because I knew I wouldn't work for a while, mm-hmm. but I'm like, if I can't love my life and enjoy my life without that, then I'm also missing out on all the richness and beauty of life and great films mm-hmm. and great stories and storytellers are telling stories, not about movies, not about, you know, I hate movies about movies. Those are my least favorite kinds of films, but it's, they're telling stories about life and what it means to live. And, mm-hmm. and if you don't live richly and you don't explore your own self in the world around you, you'll never have something to say and you'll never have something, you know, you'll ne- never be able to be happy. And so I think it's been a learning process. I do very much love what I do and it is, it's hard for me to imagine a world where I don't do that thing. Yeah. But I'm also trying to learn to love, you know, the other aspects of my life and not get caught up in just, yeah, I mean, you, you know, the, the kid in me that wants, <clears throat> the kid in me that wants validation and wants um, everyone to love me and be happy, that comes out every time a movie releases and I read every piece of criticism of it. And yeah. sometimes, you know, Socks was an experience having a movie I shot that frankly mostly got great reviews. Um, and yeah. I still felt a sense of I'm not good enough or I didn't do enough. And I'm like, okay, I have to, <laughs> that's not the movie that's that's coming from some the, the call coming from inside the house <laughs> yeah yeah that's those bad habits man that's like that's that defense mechanism that's that's yeah. that's kicking in where you know and i think a lot of that comes up because of the way the way our business works you know we there's we t- i talk about this way too much on the show but imposter syndrome is massive in our business and you know when we start when we get into it it's always fake it till you make it and you sort of get into a position where you're like, yeah, I can pull that off. And then you're attempting to pull that stuff off. And I think in our brains, at least with me and in, in our brains, we go, um, I'm, I'm bullshitting my way through this. You know what I mean? And so yeah. you're hypercritical of what it is that you're doing, especially when you start out and you're like, I barely made this shit. I barely made this happen. And then, um, when you're putting out films and as a director, when you're putting out films, um, you realize, that a lot of the stuff that people like in the film are often beyond your control and unplanned by you. They're, they're happy accidents or mistakes or pivots or how, um, you know, the, the production itself sort of shaped it to be what it is. And then in the beginning for me, I was always very insecure about that where I was just like, that's my fuck up though. That was a total fuck up. And I was trying to do this and I was trying to do that. Yeah, And then as you progress and you further you get into the game, the more you realize like, whoa, 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 that's the, and the more people I talk to on the show and, and dependent upon how, even the people that are big that I talk to on the show, yeah, you go, oh, that's the fucking job though. <laughs> that's the job because we're under this delusion when we get started that uh, geniuses exist <laughs> and, yeah. and that, you know, there are people out there that literally were born, like they came out of their mother with an idea of lens choices. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like it's, it's this whole sort of like bullshit narrative that we all sort of believe in and we're real hard on ourselves for it because we're like, look, I don't think I'm as good as that person because obviously that person's a fucking genius. So I have to sort of, uh, you know, make it up and go through the process of, of basically bullshitting my way into here. 
And then you realize the more you're into it, that the, the freedom in understanding that, like, I don't have all the answers, and it's okay that I don't have all the answers, and I'm not going to get fired for not having all the answers. And now I'm here to choose, and I'm here to sort of navigate as we, you know, cast off in the sh submarine with holes. I'm here to sort of navigate our way through it and find the magic that's in there. It, when, I f when I finally came to that realization as a creator, uh, it was almost like this sigh of stress relief, where I was just like, yeah. Okay. Be good to yourself. Fuck off. Like no one's perfect. And, uh, the, the skill really is being in the middle of a tornado, you know, being strapped in a barn with Helen Hunt and, uh, what's his name and being able to look around and go, Oh shit, here's an art artful moment. And this is, this actually says something really great about the character, this thing that's happening over here. And, Oh, dude, you turn that light on. I know you're adjusting that light, but it does some really cool fucking shit. Don't move it. That's really cool. Come look at the monitor. Check out. You see what I'm saying? Oh, shit. Yeah. That means something about the character. Wow. How the fuck did that happen? I don't know. Let's move on. You know, like that to me becomes the more exciting part about filmmaking and less like I have to have every fucking answer and I have to storyboard it all out. It has to be perfect to my fucking storyboards because I'm putting way too much pressure on myself to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And in the, and also if you try to control something too much, you'll squeeze the life out of it yeah. and you'll, you know, and you, it is this constant search for the happy accidents and the spontaneity of it all. So I do think there's, there's, it is about becoming very, very clear and confident about what you're doing. And, uh, in a way that lets you access that childlike wonder again. And some of that comes from, you know, at a certain point too, getting to a point where you're like, I, I'm here because I'm uniquely qualified and talented to do this specific thing. And mm -hmm. no one else in this room knows how to do what I'm doing better than me, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe there might be no one else who knows how to do it better in the world, but there's certainly not anyone else on that. You know, there, I don't go on any set at this point and think someone else on here could shoot this better than me. And that's also because there's not a lot of, like cinematographers mutually like if one of my friends was the second unit dp i might be like fuck maybe they would do a better job but like in general no like i'm yeah i mean i was hired as the cinematographer on the job and it's not like the production designer or the director know how to shoot the movie better than i do uh, um, but it's true but to to inject myself in here real quick yeah. i would also say that be careful of that too because there's a sense of you're still judging yourself in that and i think that at the end of the day, you're getting hired to do that thing specifically for one of two things, right? It could be, it could be, honestly, it could be that right place, right time. Uh, you're a, a, a guy for the right price and you happen totally. to be available and you get hired to do that. That, that. That's still very real. But if you're connecting with a director and you're in a really good place creatively with your team, you're there because of the pink shit that sits between your ears. You're there because of your life experiences. I mean, you talked about how you came up. You talked about, um, you know, sort of getting through a very intense religious background and sort of seeing people in a different way. That filter, all those experiences create a specific filter as a cinematographer that will form, will, will make you shoot a close-up differently. Like Absolutely. You, you will see a moment or read about a moment on the page and associate that moment with some sort of event that you've seen before somewhere else. And in a hyper sort of 
stressful situation and a very controlled situation. And you're going to go, oh, cool. Actually, no, this light's better for that because I remember do this. And that's what you're there for. It's not, is there someone else in the space that could shoot this better than you? There's no one else that's in that space that comes from the same place that you do to tell yeah. that story. And I think making that distinction is important because when you say there's no one else in the space that could shoot this better than you, then it, it starts to feel technical. Like, oh, this guy knows how to use an Aerie Alexa more than I do. Or this guy knows how to, you know, turn on those fucking sky panels <laughs> or dial yeah. in that temperature better than I do. That, none of that should fucking matter. I mean, we spend so much time as shooters and filmmakers early on going, how do I use this technology? How do I recreate these looks from filmmakers that we love? How do I make this look like Seven? And then you sort of hit a point where you go, all right, I figured out how to kind of do that. I got to throw all that away now. I, that goes into my toolbox. If I'm going to be telling real stories and not sort of imitating other stories, then what's yeah. most important is my experience. Yeah, I think there's, yeah, I think all of that is completely true. And I think there's, it is about your point of view. I think for me, I had to learn that just because the producer was telling me that I didn't need something, <laughs> they didn't mean that they were actually correct. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. A lot of it was actually learning to have the confidence to be like, I know how I make the kinds of images and films that I make. And I'm the expert in what I need to do that. Yeah. And, and it took me a long time to have the confidence to say that. Um, so I think, yeah, I wouldn't say shooting it better. I just mean, doing that kind of work or that kind of job you're right it's 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 you've been you're on that sure like i did i get hired on was i the first person they interviewed for saw x and looked for no um i got hired for a variety of reasons mm -hmm. but by the time i was shooting it it's like i you know i was the person there that i was there for the reason i was there and and the point of view that i have and the experiences and the 10 years of shooting and all of those things were coming you know, and, and I'll obviously like I had a great relationship with the director and I had a really good relationship with the production designer and those influenced every decision I made as well. So it's not done in a vacuum whatsoever. It's very much done as a collaborative thing. Yeah. Um, but it is sort of recognizing that like you're there because you're in charge of this and, and you need, you know, and take ownership and confidence in that process. Yeah. Well, and when you talk about the producers and you talk about money and line producers, yeah. And that whole game, um, really what you're trying to do is sort through the motivation for why it's being made to begin with. And so yeah. when I, and this is from the outs, outside, but when I hear about the John Travolta movie that you guys worked on, which was five, five, five million, and then you guys had, what, 500,000 to shoot that thing? Yeah. Uh, it's quite obvious why the, that movie was made for the first specific yeah. people in that film. And... Uh, especially when we start talking about horror and the motivation behind uh, a lot of uh, production companies or studios that want to make horror, the, the salivating idea that you're going to make, you know, 300% return on something that you put as little money into as possible is a main motivation for a lot of folks that do that kind of thing. And yeah. I, I think that the goal for us, and I know, you probably feel the same way is that we're trying to get into a place where we could tell stories and be financed and funded enough to be able to advance our ideas, be able to advance our, te our techniques and sit there and go like, last time I shot this piece, I really knew 
that if I had these two extra pieces of gear, I could have got five more shots. So yeah. when, when I go into the next production, I'm going to fight to have those five other, or those two extra pieces of gear to try to get five more shots and to see if that theory is, is sound and that, if that works. And that's, that's the constant battle for us. And you want to get into a place where, this is why I want Hollywood to have auteurs again. But you want to get into a place where the creative process is being as celebrated as the financial gain process. Where, yeah. you know, you wouldn't go into a kitchen. Like, you wouldn't go into a fancy fucking restaurant or a place that is written up for how amazing they they make their whatever it is, right? And you go into the kitchen and go, great, I want you to make that thing that everybody loves, but uh, you can't use uh, cast iron skillets. They're too expensive. You have one burner on the stove. You know, like they don't go in there and do that to them. But they definitely do that in our business where it's oh, like yeah. this shit's too expensive. You got to scale it back. You got to make this stuff work. And I think as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, I'm always very frightened by that because God forbid you make something without the skillets in the stove that does really well and then the producers are like yeah fuck off that this is your style this is where you are <laughs> this is your this is your path now like you have you're only allowed to play in this you know two million dollar territory uh until you can somehow you know give more of your life cut off two two more limbs and then somehow prove to them <laughs> prove to them that you can do it in a higher territory you know what i mean so yeah. i don't know that's a that's a, a small rant but uh, that's definitely a fear of mine too, where it's, it's like, if you like my shit and I used to feel this way as a cinematographer, I used to get hired to do music videos. I did a lot of music videos and, um, I would have a client call me on the phone and go that last music video that you did. Um, we want you to do the same thing for this one. And I go, all right, great. Here's a whole list of the guys that you need to hire that that go with that and they go no no no. we figured you could just come in i go no you need to understand something as a cinematographer i'm taking the credit <laughs> for the work of this amazing key grip for this amazing gaffer for this amazing person they're the people that fucking did all that shit i just said yes or no through that process so you got to hire all of us and this this whole thing has to come through especially if you want to recreate this image like i can't go in there and do all that shit they did all that shit you know yeah and though i do feel like those those conversations have shifted depending on the scale of what I'm doing. And I, I do think that's, you know, that though that's been like a fun, cause I also did my first union movie mm -hmm. um, right after saw. And so Saw was non-union and um, it is a matter of that was the most bureaucratic I've ever felt about my job because I was, I joined the union to do the movie and I wasn't allowed to operate as a result because I didn't, I wasn't in the union and didn't beforehand and didn't have the ability to write right. a letter, you know, to be able to give myself the opportunity. And so it was, and I, of course I got frustrated by it, but on the other hand, I was like, this is a two camera movie. It was my fourth two camera movie in a row. And, it's hard to operate and, sh and oversee the photography for multiple cameras. And I was like, this is, you know, there is a, there will be movies where I insist on operating and then there will be times where I don't want to. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I'm willing to every, at every step you sort of make transitions and there are changes that happen and you sort of have to meet the challenges in front of you with, uh, you know, with an open mind. And I sort of saw that as this is my next stage and phase of growth. And I learned on that. And, 
Um, I'm negotiating for a movie right now that I'm pushing for two operators on because, you know, even though I love operating, I'm like, well, I have a black magic that I can just have sitting around. And if I ever want to run in and shoot some little piece, I can. Mm -hmm. Or if I want to take the camera from one of the operators, I can. Um, But it's enough to be able to shoot a substantial amount of material in a day. And, you know, and and not, and some producers understand that and some don't. And I think that that's up to us sort of knowing what we need and what we want out of something Mm -hmm. to make that kind of decision. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting too, when you talk about operators, right? Like, uh, I mean, I'm in physical therapy now with a slightly compressed spine from years of operating. So there's a piece of, there's a piece of me that I'm like, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, Yeah. But uh, I think the thing that happens with me um, and on my last piece, my cinematographer, so I usually work with David Cruda. I'm sure you know mm-hmm. who he is. Yeah, so, David, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so David shoots um, most of my stuff. And on our last piece, he wasn't available. And so I was like, oh, fuck it. I'll direct it and I'll shoot it myself. and I'll do all this stuff. And so I went through the game of, of attempting to do all of that. And... Um, you know, at first I was like, we're in a very small space. I'll just do this on sticks, keep it simple so I could focus on the performance. And that, that was what I started. And then of course you get down to the rental house and they're like, well, we'll throw in a slider. And I'm like, oh fuck, a slider would be good for this. And so then you start adding up all this shit. And so then my first night of shooting, I'm trying to direct a very sort of emotional character piece and um, also using a slider and I hadn't used this specific slider before, so I'm using a slider for the first time. And I found myself, while I'm doing the shot, I'm more hyper-focused on me hitting my marks on the slider and hitting my focus marks than I was on the performance itself. And then I found, as a director, I found that my actor was sort of uh, lost, and he was sort of irritated and frustrated. And so we ended up bringing in a camera operator um, to operate for me and I fucking fell in love with it again. And I was like, oh, right. And even though I was still, you know, designing the light, I was going through the process of doing all that stuff. I, it was nice to have somebody that ultimately became another performer for me. Um, and so that I could have that bird's eye view again and just go like, great guys. And I wasn't so hyper-focused on whether or not I had like shifted my hip the right way and I was working my my shoulder the right way to get the angle. To, you know what I mean? So like, it's a whole different mindset from being a, an operator to being someone that is got that bird's eye view on stuff. And I would assume that sort of relinquishing the main operating duties for you would open up your space to be like more hyper-focused on um, all the details as opposed to like a lot of those specific details. There's yeah, there's two sides of it. One is that it, it gives me a lot more oversight and the ability to, you know, the director I was doing this movie in Georgia with, Mercedes Bryce Morgan, she's extremely technical. And so a lot of the camera moves she wants to do are very difficult. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, it's the to the point that like the amount of energy and time, and I'm, I'm a v- pretty good operator having done it for 10, you know, probably 15 or 20 years now. And um, I, you know, there is a lot of complicated moves I can do, but it, it, it it's, and I love operating. I just did a commercial with her like a couple of weeks ago in Chicago. And we did a lot of, you know, whip pans and snap zooms and all sorts of fun stuff. And those are fun, <laughs> but it is a different thing when you have something that's really complex that you're pulling off and you need to do it in two takes or three takes. I, it's great to have people who are fantastic that you can trust. Then the flip side of it, I would say is, 
on saw the i operated four of six weeks on a camera and then i got food poisoning and COVID, and was just like <laughs> i need an operator to take this responsibility on these six day weeks and so we brought in some people and um i had a b camera operator the whole time i bumped him up to a and then brought in someone for b and i you know the last day of the shoot uh, or the last day we had acting and the la- final day we did inserts for the whole day and then but day 32 we had our final performance moments and there was a scene that's critical at the end of the movie and um we just hadn't gotten the scene and we were at a point where we were going to need to move on and i just was you know and my a cam operator uh had to bow out because he had food poisoning that (laughs) that day and so i had to jump back in and i jumped back in and like because there's some intuitive things that an operator like an operator may intuitively do certain things but like when i went and shot that scene like I jumped in and I was like, Oh, I know we're missing this close up for this part of the scene. And we're missing this close up for this part of the scene. Right. So I was moving around the whole scene, getting close ups that I knew we needed for the edit. Well, you're, but, you're, you're back editing in camera. Like you were back with the high yeah, eight at that point. And I, and I just don't know if I could have intuitively communicated that to an operator. Right. Versus just being in a moment and being like, okay, now I just landed this he took a breath and now I can cut a pull away, get the kid in this scene. So it is. So I do think the intuition that comes with that is nice. But if you're doing like a very, like, you know, in most cases, it's just nice to have great operators doing their jobs very well. And to give them a lot of, you know, I really am not, I'm not a micromanager. I really believe in empowering Mm -hmm. people to, to work and to do their best work. And that's where you get, you know, people excited. That's where you get people invested in what you're doing. So yeah, right. Right. But it also helps that you're an operator too. So like I found that when I was working with my operator on this last film and we were crammed in this hallway and there was this very specific shot and we were shooting with uh, Atlas anamorphics and they, we had these really beautiful Orions that had the very close focus. And we, and you know, a lot of the stuff that we were pulling from was like, um, very sort of distorted wide angle movements, very a la Sam Raimi, a lot of like really pushy kind of stuff. Yeah. Really fun shit. Um, and we're, we're building a vibe essentially in like a white fucking hallway. Right. And if you were to shoot this clean, you'd go, this is completely uninteresting. And so it really is coming down to not only the performance on the actor, but also the performance in the camera operator. And, what I've found over the years, being a guy that works with lighting and being a guy that works with lenses, is that the difference between a, a shitty shot and a great shot is often millimeters. And you, you're often, it's like, no, 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 no. Shift your shoulder, bring it down like like two inches, and then look look again at it. And so when you, when you bring it down there, I remember I was like, because you was having trouble finding the shot, and I said... I'm not going to tell you how to do it, but just try this. Like, come down and then look at the frame again and see if you find something else in that in that frame. And he was like, oh, right, this is the right angle. I go, yeah, yeah. And then he's like, all right, cool, cool. And then he was starting to do the math on that afterwards. And he's like, okay, this is how I'd push and this is what I would do. All right, let me show you something. I go, all right, cool, I'll go, I'll go check it out. And it, the, having the ability as an operator and knowing how my body would kind of work and knowing those specific angles and spending years and years and years trying to make things look dynamic when you don't have good production design, you don't have the, all that stuff. Um, it was, it, it really came in handy. And I'm, I'm assuming that's the same way for you at this point. If you're dealing with two different camera ops, 
if a camera operator who has been working for fucking 12 hours and they're kind of exhausted and they, like, they're not finding the moment, you can actually just walk in there and whisper in their ear and go like, what if you try this and try that and then try to play again? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more you know about everyone's job and the more you respect everyone's job on set, the more you're able to communicate and kind of lead a team in a creative collaboration to arrive at the kinds of images and thematic choices and, you know, that you want. And it's sort of, I once, I went to a Q&A once that like Yorgos Lanthimos did for The Favorite. And I, <laughs> he said something at it that always stuck with me. And um, he said, when we were rehearsing this movie, I just had the actors, I didn't do any of the scenes. I just had the actors like walk around with like crab walk and, you know, all sorts <laughs> of weird dance moves. And he's like, the point was, to create a community where risk feels safe. Yeah. And I'm like, that to me is the drive. Like, how do we create a space where everyone's engaged and everyone is able to bring their best artistic self to the table to achieve this collective, you know, pursuit of a singular vision? We'll put That's it that great, way. man. <laughs> yeah, no, dude. Because then, then it's exciting, dude, right? Because at, yeah. at that point... I think I think being like one of those asshole auteurs, I think being like a, a director who, you know, comes into a situation and goes, my word's the law and this is the deal and this is what you're getting. I, it would, it's very lonely. It's very boring. And I yeah. think that the exciting part with anything, whether you're talking about making a movie or, or putting on a party, right? You're, you're yeah. inviting all these folks as ingredients. And yeah. let those ingredients do their thing. Let those ingredients shine. Like be able to taste the experience and the time and the energy and you know like the pink tissue between each one of their ears. Like that's why you're here, is because Absolutely. of your experience. You know, amazing. It's cool stuff, dude. It's how, how are you doing on time? Are you okay? Um, I need to run. I've got a color session. I got to jump into. But that's um, all good, man. It's all good. I appreciate you being patient. We had some tech issues this morning, and I was a little late. Um, but uh, this has been a great conversation, Nick. Like, yeah, this was yeah, fantastic. It's so great to meet you, and I'm just excited for the ways that uh, the work you're doing, both with this kind of show and also the creative work that you're doing as a director. Um, Thanks, just man. Excited, yeah, about what that's going to bring into people's lives. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Well, you know, like. Uh, I, I, the, the one thing that's great about this show is I get to hang out with folks like you and we, we get to sort of, <laughs> it's kind of therapy session our way through, <laughs> totally through, through all of our insecurities and through all of our moments and, um, and you know, the stuff that I get to learn from you and, and hopefully you get to learn some stuff from me and, and as a byproduct, the audience that doesn't pay me anything, <laughs> they get to learn, <laughs> they get to learn everything for free. Um, I, look, look, I appreciate you, brother. Um, and uh, I'm excited for your work. And you seem like you, this is one of those moments where, you know, you start doing a, a movie like Saw X and then we'll see what the next, you know, three or four movies are for you. You know, it's like, yeah, you, you feel like you're at a tipping at a tipping moment for you. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm excited to see where you go, brother. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. There it is. Episode in the can. Um, I like. I just sort of embrace the fact that our show just sort of goes off into sort of these therapeutic moments, and it becomes what it is. Um, and you know, if you're tuning in 
and you're you know here to sort of find out like the specific tech details behind how a cinematographer shoots something if you were like man i'm really disappointed in this episode because i wanted to know uh where uh nick and his gaffing team were placing the green lights for saw x then this <laughs> isn't the podcast for you man it's just not um because the the truth be told those small details that everybody sort of obsesses over that everybody tries to create the same YouTube video over to get likes and all that shit. Um, they're the smallest part of what we do, right? Well, this is the smallest part of what you do as a cinematographer. And that's unfortunate, right? Because that may be the reason why you get into it. Lighting is the reason why you get into it or using the camera is the reason why you get into it. That's what you love the most about it. That's great. But a big portion of what it is to be a cinematographer is everything else. It's uh, trying to get the job. It's processing getting the job. It's dealing with line producers. It's dealing with other uh, production heads. It was really nice to hear Nick talk about how a main part of what he does is he examines directors and he learns about directors as he works with them and understands where they come from. It's at that point, you know, he's observing human um, emotion. He's observing how uh, humans process stress, right? So, like, th that's a big part of it man and then when you're dealing with your team and your crew and we kind of touched upon it in this conversation when we were talking about working six hour uh, weeks and, or six day weeks and then when you get down to mexico and there's no ot the the toughest part about there being no overtime in mexico is that it doesn't it doesn't entice the production to be more mm, what's the term i'm looking for to be more concise with their decisions because they know that there's overtime coming. That's the purpose behind overtime. The purpose behind overtime isn't so that crew makes more money. The purpose is to try to dissuade indecision. The purpose is try to force the team or the production crew or the production company to be more decisive about their stuff, right? Because a lot of the time when you're being pushed, not all the time, but a lot of the time when you're being pushed into overtime, you're being pushed into long hours, it's because someone hasn't done their fucking homework, right? Maybe uh, someone has decided like, oh, I don't like the way that looks, so we have to flop the whole room around. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's indecisiveness that makes that. And so it's supposed to be a thing that dissuades you. Like if you get meal penalties, it's called a penalty for a reason. <laughs> Right? It's supposed to make sure that you're feeding people on time. That, that's the purpose of it. And so when you're going to a place where it doesn't have those things, you can't help but think that there's going to be some sort of, you know, abuse that's going on. And that's a strong word, you know, but yeah. And, you know, when you're hearing about uh, crew members having food poisoning and you're hearing about, you know, health issues it's because you're not really taking into consideration all of the folks that are working on that thing right because you're working them to their to the fucking till their fingernails bleed come on man and i get it right budgets make it as cheap as you can make a lot of money right i, I haven't seen what saw brought in for profits but that's the, that's this fucking business that we work in there is such a wide gap, and that was the reason why we had the strikes. We might have another strike, right? I mean, I've heard rumblings about an IOTC thing. Hopefully that doesn't happen. But um, the there's a reason that those things happen, because there is such a distance between 
when you're trying to get something off the ground and you're going into these rooms, you're going into these business offices and you're talking to these folks and you're saying, hey, I want to do this thing. And they go, okay, so you can only make this for two million. You, you can only make this for a million. And that's what we're doing. That's our whole business strategy. You go into certain places, and I'm not going to call them out right now, but certain production companies that are known for most of the horror stuff that's out there, and their business strategy is we do two million pieces, a handful of two millions, and maybe some five millions, and that's all we do, regardless of what the concepts are, regardless of what that stuff is. And so when you're, as an audience member, you're you're looking through that queue and you're saying like, why do a lot of these movies feel cheap? Or why do these movies all have the same sort of general concept? It's because they're being fucking forced into this budget range. And that budget range exists ultimately because these companies are like, hey, look, we've got a, a hundred million. So let's let's put as many eggs in the basket as we possibly can. So let's divide it out. So we'll do, you know, however many fucking $2 million movies, however many $5 million movies, and we'll just put as many eggs out there as we possibly can to make return on it. Um, because of how unstable this business is, how unreliable the audience is in this business. Um, and so there's a huge gap between that sort of bit that we deal with as directors and producers to then when you start to finally get a green light and finally get to the part where you're then approaching the crew and the team and you're hiring your keys. And that's the first step, right? You're hiring your production designer, you're hiring your cinematographer, you're hiring the people at the top. And then those people are confronted with the realities that have already been put into place as you sort of cross that gap, right? Where they go, all right, so what are we doing? Here's the script, it's great, this is awesome. Okay, how, how, how much time do we have? What do we have? And so what the companies do is they hire their, their line of defense between uh, the, the tidal wave of cost and uh, the reality of their business plan. And so they hire line producers. And so they have these people that are in between where they're essentially the folks that are maintaining the budget, uh, monitoring how much comes in and out, like uh, putting the cash where it's supposed to go. Um, and oftentimes, and I don't want to talk negative about line producers. I should probably have some on the show. I don't want to talk negative about it because there are some great line producers out there, but there's also line producers out there that get off on bringing things in cheaper. And so it becomes a cheaper chicken kind of game. And so then you have the people on the left side of the, of the, the gap that are like, bullshitting their way through it, right? Here's a great idea. We could totally do this for $2 million. Can you do it for $2 million? Yeah, we could do this for $2 million. Let's bring in one of our line producers, give us a budget that makes it work for $2 million. They scrape it all down, they make it work, they bring it to the place, they go, yeah, we could do it for $2 million. That director is sitting there and one way or another going, uh, yeah, 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 I can do things faster, I can make stuff happen. Yeah, 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 we'll do it for $2 million. We'll do it for $2 million because at this point, you've been up for how many different jobs, right? And so there's, there's this whole bit where it's like, I have to do this no matter what. Let's just get them to say yes, and then we'll figure it out. Then that's the game, right? And so then it hits this point where then the line producer is dealing with a director and uh, and uh, uh, key players, right? Your cinematographers and all those folks that are actually hitting you with realities where it's like, well, if we're going to do all this stuff, that's actually going to take this amount of time and we need this kind of gear and I should probably have this many people to do this kind of thing. And the line producer is just sort of entering those numbers into a budget going, oh, you can only have three guys. You can't have five, four guys. I don't know. You can't get that crane. I don't know. You know what I mean? So then 
that's how movies work financially and creatively. And the one place that it seems like it is a lot more flexible, right? Because locations cost a certain amount of money. Um, you know, there are certain rigidities that cost a certain amount of money. Like when, when you hear... When you hear that bit on Mobland where they had a $5 million budget and 500,000 went to the production, that's because all those actors are trying to make, trying to make some cash, <laughs> right? And it, it seems like that specific company that makes those movies does a lot of that stuff. I mean, there's a reason why there was, Bruce Willis was like living at the back end of his career at that company. You know, you've seen Schwarzenegger working at that company. A lot of these, these, these talented actors that were paid a certain level prior to this come into this back end of it, and it seems like a payday. You know what I mean? And so then that team and that director and that production team is sort of confronted with that reality, right? Where it's like, okay, my movie got greenlit, but this is a payday for these guys. And so how do I... This should be a $2 million movie with a $5 million budget, but now I have 500000 What do I do? And then the, the flip side of that, as I sort of rant through this, when, when I was talking about this stuff with sales agents, the reality of the situation is um, you need these actors and you need these folks to even make a profit back to, to justify spending anything more than $300,000 on it. You need these people on board. And so it's, it's this game. See the fucking game that happens here? where you know you're trying as a director or as a creator trying to get something off the ground right and so you know because you've been shooting on your own you know how much time and energy and what it would cost to do this and how fast you can do this sort of thing and if you hire just your friends with it you probably get it done pretty quickly and at an affordable fucking rate but the audience doesn't give a shit about your friends right? The audience is, is so oversaturated, so bloated with content right now that the only thing that'll get them to turn their heads for anything, and this has been this way even before streaming, was like, who the fuck's in it? Oh, Travolta's in it. Weird. You know, Stephen Dorff is in it. Weird. Okay, got it. Right? Or if it's a horror piece, it's like, oh, the Saw guy is in it, right? Or Freddy Krueger's in it, right? It's, 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 that's what the draw is. And then the way the business works, you know, the agents and the management and everybody that's behind these folks, the way the business works is that they understand that they have a negotiating leg up, right? And so then they're in the mode where it's like, well, if, we, if I know that my star is going to make your money back, so my star needs to be making more money, you know? And so then when you're a filmmaker that's like, well, I need a certain amount of money to be able to tell the story visually and to tell the story the way I see the story. Now you're confronted with the fact that like a majority of that money that you were so happy to raise is now <laughs> pulled right out of it. Right. And then the question is, would you even have got $5 million if Travolta wasn't coming on board and probably getting $2 million of that $5 million? You know what I mean? This is all me, you know, assuming, right? None of this is proven. But, and I, this isn't a special case. This, this happens with most of these smaller budget movies. This is the game of the smaller budget world. And everybody is either hoping that they're going to make something super cheap that is going to be a lottery win. And then suddenly you went on and you made Smile. You know what I mean? And that movie made how many? You know, what did that movie make? 300 million or something? And it was made for what? 5 million or 6 million? 
So, like, that's a fucking win-win-win for the people at the top, right? Uh, the crew doesn't get more money <laughs> when it gets to that point. There's no bonuses to the crew for that. And I feel like when you're crossing that divide, to get back to what I was originally saying, and you're dealing with the, the team and these people that are now being worked six days instead of five days, um, they're, everything's falling on their backs. They're the ones making the movie. They're the ones doing it. Everything from the top of the line down. So above the line, it's all in theory. It's all ideas. It's all, uh, you know, you know, plans, right? But the people make it. The, the, the poor asshole that has to run cable up the side of that building, you know, on hour 12, right? The PA that had to race down to the store to grab another pair of glasses for continuity, you know, you know the the art department that was up for 15 hours, you know, dressing uh, a last minute location, the locations teams, like these are the people that entire movies hinge on. This is the platform. This is the foundation of how movies are made, and oftentimes these this foundation has just got so much weight on it and uh, so much stress put on it. And uh, it's always, how do I get it done cheaper? You know what I mean? It's kind of the uh, slimy part of this business. And it's, it's hard. When, when you heard Nick and I talking about uh, traumas, when you heard me talking a bit about working on that first movie that I did, the a side effect of that, the effect of the way that that business works, everything I sort of walked you through, is that it's traumatic for us as as workers in this business. And when you come out of the back end of this, all that stress, all that front of stress, the am I good enough? And can I bullshit my way in? Can I do this thing? And then you're on set and you're like, fuck, I don't have enough things. And now I have to start giving up ideas. And now I have to start uh, shifting and changing. And oh, fuck, I found some sort of beauty in the, the craziness. Oh, cool. And now I'm sticking with that. And then you get into the edit room and the way everything changes in the edit room. And the politics that come with the edit. And, and then if you're on the team and you're on the crew, uh, no matter what happens, the, these situations that we all crave to be in um, are incredibly traumatic. And when you come out of the back end of it, uh, regardless if it's a good movie or a bad movie, um, you plummet. You really do. You emotionally plummet. I don't care who you are. Um, and you have to be prepared for that. And this is something that they're not going to teach you in film school. This is something that you're not going to learn on YouTube. Um, how do you prepare yourself for the plummet, for the depression that comes in the back end of this? And uh, we've got quite a few episodes about this. And go back and listen to them. And a great episode to listen to, I think it was season one with Jesse from Kill Switch Engage. And him and I talk about that. That was the reference that I made in today's episode when I talk about the rock stars. The one with the... Jesse from Killswitch. I think that's like episode four or five or something. And he uh, talks about that too. Um, you have to figure out a way to healthily plummet after this and sort of give yourself uh, a way to be uh, okay with it and okay with living in the world that isn't shooting, living in the world that isn't being on a crew and being on a team and making sure that your relationship is healthy and making sure that your friendships are healthy and making sure that you are healthy to yourself. Um, something to think about. 
anyway, that's it. Thanks for listening to the show, everybody. Uh, lots more episodes on the way. Lots of cool content coming from ILWP. Lots of stuff. Have you noticed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got plans, man. Um, hope you're good. And I'm talking to you in the future. It's not even Christmas yet here. We're getting ready for Christmas here. But uh, hope everything was great. Hope your holidays are good. And uh, I will talk to you again. I'll see you next Tuesday, all right?